Well, it's Easter, and I so appreciate our music team for leading us in the praise and worship of our great God and King. And I can't help but think, thank you, I can't help but think that it just blesses God's heart when we unify as one body in praise and worship of Him. We have so much to be thankful for. We exist here at Abundant Life to express our gratitude for what Christ has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. And boy, this Easter season, we get to do just that. So, let me take a drink here. One of the challenges of being a pastor at a church for an extended period of time, so this is my ninth year going through the Easter season here at Abundant Life. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Amen. Um, but the challenge is, how do I present this material regarding the resurrection in a fresh way? How, how, how do I do this in a way so it doesn't become stale to us? So that we don't lose the wonder of this most amazing miracles of miracles, right? So... I was really struggling. I was um, praying. I spent time with the Lord, and I did not find any direction. I really didn't. I didn't feel a leaning one way or the other. I'm like, what am I going to do? Thankfully, I remembered that Brandon and Haley had told me that that we were going to be singing Living Hope, that song. And so I'm like, you know what? Mary said I've heard it, but let me listen to it. And it immediately took me to the passage in 1 Peter, where Peter talks about how Christ is our living hope. Amen. So I went to that passage, and I'm, I'm looking at it, and God spoke. He spoke. And what I saw in that passage is that the resurrection of Christ gives us hope for our past, gives us hope for today, and it gives us hope for tomorrow, our future. And it's right there in that passage. So we're going to be anchored in that passage this Easter season, and I, my prayer, I pray that you would join me in this prayer, is that as we complete this Easter season, we will be a people so full of hope, so overflowing with hope, that we then extend hope to the hopeless that we come in contact with every day. People are drowning in hopelessness, in despair. And the sad part is, they don't have to, because Jesus is alive. So pray with me, and we'll start our look at this electric passage of scripture that Justin read to us earlier. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can talk to you now, because you are living, because the, the grave could not contain you, Death couldn't defeat you. Lord, thank you so much that you're the type of God that desires to give us that same victory. Lord, we are on holy ground. We are in the presence of the mighty one, the victor of victors, the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you for being who you are. Lord, I pray that you would so infuse hope deep in our bones this Easter season. 
We love you, Jesus. Be our teacher. Help us to be attentive to your spirit that wants us, wants to remind us of everything you've taught. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning I'm going to focus on one verse. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, that is, that is a sentence. It's not even a sentence. It's only part of one. Peter, here, he's describing something that has happened to him and to his audience that, is, that has been so drastic, so transformative, so new, so fresh, so different, that the only metaphor he can think of to describe it is childbirth. That's how drastic this transformation in Christ that he has experienced and his audience has experienced has been. This new life in the kingdom of God that we've been talking about in our (laughs) old sermon series that we'll get back to with the resurrected Jesus has been so transformative, has given Peter such a fresh start that the only language he can think to use is it's been like I've been born again. And Peter's story so demonstrates this, doesn't it? For those of you who know Peter's story, I can't help but love Peter. And I think I love Peter so much because I see myself in Peter. The scriptures, as you read about Peter's story, if you answered the question, I'm impulsive, more so than I am calculated, if you answer the question, I'm outspoken more than soft-spoken, you're like Peter. That's how Peter was. That's how he operated. That's how God had wired him. Now, this can be quite a lethal combination, can it? Impulsivity. (laughs) And being outspoken, right? Sometimes that can really, that can be a great strength, but yet sometimes it can really bite you. Surely, Peter was that guy who put his foot in his mouth more than once, right? Surely, he left people scratching their head thinking, did he really, did he just say that, really? He was the guy that probably said everything that everybody else wanted to say, but didn't have the courage to say, right? That was Peter, passionate, outspoken, opinionated, always knew what they th- you know, were thinking and feeling. Maybe some of you can relate. And so when Jesus started informing his disciples that, look, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed, It's no surprise that Peter is very quick to say, and and Jesus said, hey, look, all you disciples, you're going to desert me, by the way. So it's no surprise that Peter was like, no, no, no way, not me. In other words, they might, but I'm not going to. And, of course, We find as we go along in Peter's story that Jesus was arrested 
And when Jesus was on trial, Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And then when they took Jesus away to be beaten and mocked and then killed, Peter, he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Bitterly, the Greek word behind bitterly, means poignant with grief. Poignant means evoking a keen sense of sadness or regret. Peter was drowning in an ocean of shame. Shame. He betrayed his best friend Jesus just when Jesus needed him most. He had chickened out. He had done what he said he wasn't going to do. And now Jesus was dead. The sorrow, the grief, the shame. Shame. As human beings, there are a lot of negative emotions that we experience, but I don't know if there's any emotion that is more powerful than shame. Here's why. Shame is deeper than guilt. And in my estimation, it's always accompanied with fear. We feel guilt when we messed up. We feel shame when we believe we are messed up. We feel guilt when we have committed wrong. We feel shame when we believe we are wrong. Shame is what we feel when we believe that we don't just do defective things. We are defective. We are not just a person that messes up. We are messed up. Shame is that painful feeling of humiliation. It's that painful feeling of embarrassment. Shame can come upon us in a variety of ways, can it? Failure often leads to shame. We set goals. We don't reach them. You, don't, you didn't make the team, right? You didn't finish high school or college. You didn't get the job or the position. You weren't able to help that client that you really wanted to, to, to help or that, that patient you really wanted to help. You still haven't hit that particular body weight. Your business or your church or your nonprofit organization still hasn't grown like you thought it would. Your finances aren't what you thought they would be at this stage in your life. And you feel shame, you feel humiliated, you feel embarrassed, you feel inadequate. Maybe you've not failed, maybe, maybe it's not your expectations you've placed on yourself that you failed to live up to and now you're feeling shame. Maybe it's the expectations of others that you failed to live up to. Perhaps you grew up with parents that had a habit of making you feel inadequate. Your grades weren't good enough. You didn't look good enough. You didn't eat right. Your work ethic wasn't good enough. And today, you are ripe with insecurity. And to heap shame upon shame, you're not only shameful of not measuring up to the expectations of others, but you feel shame because you're still dealing with it. And you're 30, and you're 40, 
and you're 50 and you're 60 and you're still dealing with all kinds of insecurity because of some other people's expectations that were placed on you that you didn't meet. And you feel shame about that, that it's still affecting you. You can't seem to shake it. And then, wrongdoing can lead to shame, can it? Maybe you're here today and you had an affair and it has had devastating effects on your spouse and your children. Maybe you weren't married, but you had an inappropriate relationship with somebody that, had, that, that was married, is married. And it's caused a whole bunch of turmoil for that person's family. Maybe you're here today and you've been verbally or physically abused in some way. By your spouse, by your parents, by someone else. Perhaps you're here and you've had an abortion. And the decision has haunted you ever since. And you believe you are a disgrace and a sick excuse for a human being. Perhaps you're here today and you've manipulated people for sex. You made them think that you cared about them when you really didn't. What you really cared about was your pleasure. But now you realize the hurt that you've caused them and you can't shake it. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with some sort of addiction. Maybe it's pornography. I mean, if the statistics are accurate, there's a good chance there are people sitting right here in this room that are addicted and struggling with it. Maybe you've been addicted to something else and you've lied and you've cheated to get your next high. Look, this is how Satan likes to work. This is how he likes to work. Hear this. This is what he will do. He will try to get you to fill legitimate needs and desires by illegitimate means. And here's the thing. When you do it, he'll entice you to do it. And then when you actually do fill a legitimate uh, desire with an (laughs) illegitimate way, you know what he does? He shames you. How could you? You fool. How could you have done that? That's how the enemy works. He will, he will give you all sorts of reasons for doing it, and then when you do it, he just beats you up. And then there's the shame we can feel because of the hurts that others have caused us, Right? That can lead to shame. If our spouse cheats on us, it may leave us feeling defective, right? Well, what's wrong with me if they had to go somewhere else? If we've been abused in some way, we can believe the lie that there must be something wrong about us for someone to treat us in the way that they did. As somehow we deserved it. We can feel dirty. We can feel defiled. We can even blame ourselves, right? If we've been told that we are ugly or dumb, it's easy for us to really start seeing ourselves in that 
like. And so shame could come upon us from all these different avenues. And here's where shame takes us. So no matter where or how shame comes to us, it almost always leads to the same destination. And it is a destination of fear, of hiding, and isolation. Fear, hiding, isolation is where shame will take you. You know why? Because you're afraid that if others find out this thing that you feel humiliated about or embarrassed about, they will reject you. And so I am scared to death that people will know the truth about me because if they did, they wouldn't want to be around me. They wouldn't want to be a friend of mine. And so what we do is we, we, in fear of being found out, we hide ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We put up walls. We put up barriers. We're not transparent. And so what ends up happening is that we separate ourselves from everything and everyone. Our life goal can become keeping our shame in the shadows. We don't want to deal with it because we're afraid that, oh my goodness, we might find out more about ourselves that we might be shameful of. We don't want others to find out about it. Now here's the thing. Shame, you may try and hide from it, and you may try and keep it in the shadows, but it won't hide from you, and it won't stay in the shadows. It will resurface, and it will continue to resurface. It'll bubble up. It'll come to the surface in your relationships. Like I said, you won't be transparent. You're not going to let people in. You're going to be really guarded. It's going to show up in the choices. It'll surface in the choices that you make. You're not going to take risk. You're not going to challenge yourself. I mean, if you feel inadequate, if you feel that deep down in you are deficient, you're not going to take risks. It will come to the surface physiologically. There will be tightness in your chest. There will be an upset stomach. There will be tension in your muscles. You see, shame is the poison that the enemy uses to keep you locked up in the prison cell of fear, of humiliation, and isolation. It is one of the enemy's favorite weapons, I believe. And so the question is, is there any hope for those that are drowning in shame? Is there any hope? Well, 1 Peter 1.3 declares loudly and clearly that there is hope for our past. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1.3. Let's check it out. It says, according to his abundant mercy. Mm. God saw Peter in his shame. God sees you in your shame. God saw Peter all filled with embarrassment and humiliation. He sees you. In your embarrassment. He sees you filled with humiliation. God saw Peter feeling defective. He sees you feeling defective, inadequate, insecure. He hears your harsh self-talk. He hears it. 
He sees you isolating yourself. And what is God's response? What was it for Peter? Was it condemnation? No, it was mercy. Mercy. God saw Peter miserable and afflicted by the shame of his wrongdoing, and it caused God to act. It, got, it caused God to act. How did God act? Well, 1 Peter 1.3 tells us he caused Peter to be born again. We've already talked about that Peter was born again. He was given a whole new life. He was transformed inside and out. He was given a fresh start. His thoughts, his thinking about life changed. His strategy for living changed. His attitudes changed. His behavior changed. Born again. It's the only way, the only metaphor we can use to describe it. In other words, Peter received freedom from his past. Now, how did God cause Peter to be born again in this sort of way? Well, the verse tells us, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Check this out. This is so amazing. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, while he hung on the cross, he despised its shame. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that Jesus despised the shame of the cross? You know what that means? It means that Jesus taunted it. He mocked it. He scorned it. He derided it. He looked down on it. In other words, what Jesus did on the cross is he shamed shame. That's what he did. You see, crucifixion was not just the way, just the way to kill criminals. It was to kill criminals, but it was also to humiliate criminals. They wanted everyone to see this the romans this is what happens if you disobey roman rule you end up on a cross like this so they wanted to um, deter other people from criminal activity and so crucifixion was this public thing and the person was beaten and hung on a cross naked for everyone to see talk about humiliation And they weren't hung up high like a lot of the movies show. Actually, they were hung about at face level from somebody standing. Why? So that spectators could mock the person being crucified right to their face. So they could spit on him. We see that happen with Jesus. Often the person that was being crucified would urinate and defecate all over themselves talk about humiliating of course they would be moaning and groaning talk about humiliating mutilated their body would just be bleeding from all the beatings Jesus endured 
all of this humiliation and shame. But there was more. You know what else Jesus endured in regards to shame? Is your shame. All your mess-ups, all the ways that you've hurt other people, all the ways you've promised to do one thing and have done another, all the ways that people have hurt you, that was all placed on him. It was all placed on him, and Jesus bore that. He experienced it. He felt it. Why? Because he was defeating it. He was killing it. What was designed to shame him, he was using to defeat shame. That's what he was doing. See the sour. And right before Jesus breathed his last, he said this in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head. He gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is finished? Shame's tyranny was finished. But wait a minute. How do we know that Jesus killed shame? It sure looked like shame killed him. Sure looked like shame was the victor, not Jesus. And that is why the resurrection is so critical, so important, because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, was there any more shame or humiliation or embarrassment on Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? No, it was gone. Jesus was resurrected to new life. He was born again to new life. Jesus' resurrection proves that through the cross he really did kill shame. It proves it. And that's why the New Testament shows story after story of God, of Jesus, because he is the, the shame killer, totally freeing people from the shame of their past because he has power over shame. This is precisely what Peter experienced, didn't he? No wonder Peter wrote this verse in this passage. Look, when Jesus came to Peter after his resurrection, did Jesus go to Peter and say, hey, you screw up. First of all, I was sweating drops of blood in the garden, and you couldn't even stay awake. And then... You, you promised that you would never forsake me, and then you did it, and, but not just once, not twice, three times. When I needed you the most, you weren't there for me. You coward, you liar. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus didn't do any of that. Not one condemning word came out of Jesus' mouth for Peter. Not even... A passive-aggressive-like statement. Why? Because on, on the cross, Jesus killed Peter's shame. It was dead to Jesus. Dead. Jesus was not looking at Peter through the lens of Peter's mistakes. And therefore, it had no bearing on Peter's future. 
in Jesus' mind. Look, God will never shame you over your past. That's what the enemy does. He loves to dredge up the past for and then beat you up about it. That's not what Jesus wants to do. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could have life through him. To emphasize this very truth that Jesus was not looking at at Peter through the lens of his past failures. Peter is asked by Jesus three times, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, you know I love you. Then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Ask him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And he asked him a third time. Obviously, what God, what Jesus was doing there was saying, look, Peter, both of, you, both of us know what you've done. But that's not going to define you anymore. I don't want you wallowing in shame. I don't want you in despair. I don't want you hopeless. You are going to be full of hope because I am making you a new creation. I am giving you a new purpose, a new calling, a new family, a new power at work within you to live out this new life that I'm giving you, this fresh start I am giving you. You are going to become what your name that I gave to you means the rock on which I will build my church. You understand God wants to give you a new name? He wants to give you a new name. The mercy that God has for you. So what does this mean at the street level, right? How do we apply this? How do we appropriate this? How do we make use of it? Let me give you a couple practical steps that you can take to partner with Jesus to live a life dead to the shame of your past. Because it's dead. You, it's dead. Jesus nailed it to the cross. It is dead. So how do we live a life dead to the shame of our past? First of all, if you have not come to Jesus confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart that he is the resurrected Lord and Savior, you need to do that. That's the first step. That's the first step to becoming unshackled by your past. Romans 10, 9 through 11 says this, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him, say what? Not be put to shame. Look, when we come to Jesus in surrender, our past is forgiven. We no longer stand before God condemned. We receive this new heart alive within us that gives us a a new life. And we receive God's spirit that takes residence, takes up residence in us and empowers us to live this life of freedom. Here's the second practical step you must take. 
you have to be resolute in your commitment to partner with the resurrected Christ and his spirit that resurrects to kill. It's already killed. To live out a life dead to shame. And you can do that in three practical ways. Look, be with Jesus and his people to learn about what it means to live this new born again life. Because the more you immerse yourself in it, what the scriptures have to say about it, the more you understand that you are a new creation, that you have been given a new heart, a new calling, new purpose, new family, a new power, the more you can live alive to it. Look, you got to come out of your hiding. You got to come out of your isolating. The second thing you need to do, and this is so critical, is you got to take every thought that is regarding the shame of your past, you've got to take it captive, with the, obviously empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our thinking impacts how we feel, and how we feel impacts how we live. The battle against the shame of our past is waged in our minds. And we have to choose. I'm not even going to entertain thoughts. When that negative self-talk wants to just beat me up, and when my mind wants to take me to the sins of my past or the hurts of my past, I am going to choose by the Spirit to be dead to it by not engaging with it. It's dead. It's finished. We have to be relentless with this. And we don't try and get rid of the thoughts because that only makes those thoughts come all the more. We just recognize them. And we refocus our attention on what we're doing in the present moment. What God has called us to. And this takes practice and it takes spirit, spirit-given spirit discipline. How else do we live a life dead to shame? Look, you've got to be able to talk to a friend or a counselor about your shame. You've got to open up about it. You've got to. I've experienced the healing power that, of God through a counselor as I opened up about shame and hurts and my fears, my insecurities. Because often we need somebody in the trenches with us helping us to take every thought captive, teaching us how to take every thought captive, extending empathy to us. Empathy is so important. This is such a powerful step opening up to a trusted friend or a counselor. I can't emphasize it enough. And I believe that there are many people that will still be in the prison of their shame because they are not willing to take this step. And I hate that. I think this is especially important if you've experienced some sort of trauma in your life. You got to. I know it sounds very spiritual to say, all I need is Jesus. But he said you need other people. So, And he often wants to reveal and minister to you through one of his people. 
I could go on with other practical steps, but I think these are critical. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shamed shame on the cross. That what was meant to shame you, you used to bear our shame. Lord, thank you that you have killed it. And that when we come to you as Lord and Savior, you can give us the power to live a life dead to the shame of our past. So that we are no longer prisoners of it. So that we are no longer driven by it. So that we are no longer consumed with trying to hide it, isolating ourselves in fear that we might be found out. Lord, I believe you've given me this message because there are people here that are still in bondage to the shame of their past. Lord, I am praying that they would go to a trusted friend or a counselor and that you would use that relationship to bring them deep healing so that they live a life free so that they live in the present moment, enjoying it, risking, daring, journeying with you to rescue others from the pit of hopelessness that shame leads to. Lord, we thank you that you are a resurrected king and that we can have hope for our past. If you had not risen from the dead, we would be lost without hope. We praise you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.